Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. We can be found at the NevadaIndependent.com. I'm joined tonight, as always, by our trio of superb Carson City reporters, Riley Snyder, Michelle Rendells, and Megan Messerly. Hi, team. Hey, John. Hey, John. Listen to that chorus. I mean, they could be a, they could be backup singers <laughs> for a great band. Uh, this is actually the pen, penultimate week of the 79th session, and both sides are voting a lot of bills out. We're here Thursday night awaiting the last major deadline Friday when bills have to be either sent to the governor or they die. We'll talk about some of the bills that lived and died, and we'll tell you about the major transparency bill for the pharmaceutical industry that passed just today, and we'll get some national attention, I guess. We'll also tell you about how lawmakers are closing down budgets and what issues have yet to be resolved. Will there be educational savings accounts in Nevada? We'll talk about that, too. So, gang, let's start first. Lots of bills passing out. What were the highlights? Who wants to start? Well, they're both looking at me, so I can start. Uh, well, clearly the highlight for me was a lot of the renewable energy bills moved this week. Um, Assembly Bill 206, this bill I've talked about before on the podcast, that would raise the state's renewable portfolio standard, basically how much energy has to be generated by renewable sources, increasing it to 50% by 2030. It's a really um, ambitious measure. It's gotten a lot of pushback from major gaming companies, but it passed out of the Assembly this week. I found the vote to be kind of interesting. All the Democrats supported it. Um, and there were three Republicans who also supported it, Jill Tolles, Keith Pickard, and James Oscarson. Tolles and Pickard are known as kind of moderate freshman Republicans. Uh, Tolles voted for the bill out of committee, said she wanted to bring back a lot of solar jobs, wanted to bring back a lot of renewable um, production to the state. Oscarson is an interesting one because he represents a district in Pahrump that you wouldn't really think is like a hotbed for renewable energy. But Pahrump is not served by Envy Energy. I'm sure we have a lot of Pahrump listeners, so this is probably... <laughs> Uh, common knowledge to them, but it's actually served by an electric co-op called Valley Electric, and they came out in favor of the bill um, last week. And not to suggest things are related, but Oscarson's wife also works for Valley Electric. So he was also a yes. It passed out 30 to 12, and now goes over to the Senate, where it has <clears throat> about 10 days to pass. There's been a lot of movement on the bill. There's been renewable groups who have been pushing for it the entire session. As you reported, John, um, there's a new conservative nonprofit that's going to spend six figures trying to kill it. I, I don't remember the name. I think it's like Secure, Secure Nevada's Future. Yeah, yeah. It's such a memorable yes, name. Exactly. Um, so yeah, they're, we they're, should thank them, I think, by the way. Are they, are they the sponsor for this yeah, week's no, episode? No, no, just thank them for securing Nevada's future yeah, for us, Yeah, of I course. Think. <laughs> it was unsecured before. Um, so they're spending money. There's a ton of lobbying going on. We'll, there's a big chance for amendments to come. Envy Energy has been officially neutral, but they had like a list of all these different tweaks or changes to the bill. They said they wouldn't be able to comply with it unless these tweaks or changes were made. So it passed the first hurdle, but there's still a lot of stuff uh, waiting to be sorted out on that bill. So uh, some people might not understand uh, why the gaming industry is opposed uh, to this. Uh, generally, when the gaming industry is opposed to something, uh, except for MGM, which is which is uh, for this bill, it's because it's going to cost them more money, or at least they believe it will. How does that work that this would cost them more money? So this bill is different because in Nevada, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we put a provision in state law that allows uh, large power customers to exit the grid. So they don't have to get their energy from Envy Energy. They can just go out and buy it on the open market. Barrett Gold, the mining company, did that in the late 90s, and no one else did it. It's There's been sort of a revival to do it in the last couple of years. Like Caesars has left the grid. Switch has left the grid. MGM has left the grid. 
because they think that they can buy and they can buy power more cheaply on the open market without having to go through Envy Energy. So what this bill does is that it requires these companies that have left the grid to meet these renewable standards unless they have left the grid prior to 2012. So all the big guys like MGM, Caesar, Switch, they're going to have to start following these renewable portfolio standards. Prevents kind of a problem for them because they, you know, they can't really produce their own electricity. They can't like trade for renewable credits unless like Win or uh, MGM wants to go out and become a utility and be regulated by the PUC, which is impossible. So a lot of them have come out and said we're we're kind of opposed to it for those reasons. They're also opposed to it because there's this ongoing question about what happens with Question Three and energy deregulation. So they they've had a a number of of issues presented against the bill. But as you said, MGM did come out in favor. It wasn't super strong. I think a lobbyist just kind of told me they didn't you know hold a parade and you know poise Chris Brooks's name from the rafters, but. They are supporting the bill. And uh, the NRA, I gather, I actually, <clears throat> excuse me, I heard this just right before I came here. The NRA is going to have a new statement, I hear, right before the hearing uh, on, on, on this bill. Who knows? Maybe they'll soften uh, their, their position. Uh, so uh, that's Chris Brooks's bill. And the, uh, the other bill that he has been pushing is a rooftop solar bill. Uh, where is that now? So that bill was heard yesterday in a Senate committee. It, the hearing went on until about like noon or so. It went on for two or three hours. And what had happened, if you're not a regular listener to Indie Matters and you're not following what's going on with the net metering debate, this bill is trying to reinstate these really favorable rates for rooftop solar customers when they quote-unquote sell energy back to the grid. It would create this tiered system where they get 95% of the retail rate of electricity the whole idea is to get all these rooftop solar companies who left following uh, the Public Utilities Commission in, in 20, end of 2015, start of 2016, to cut rooftop solar rates, um, get, the, get them going again because a lot of these companies left the state. So interestingly, Envy Energy came out, and again, they were neutral on the bill, but they had a, a PowerPoint, which they also gave to all the legislative leadership, saying this is going to cost us $63 million a year, I think $1.3 billion over 20 years, which is the life of a rooftop solar system. To implement. Now, I've heard pushback from a lot of rooftop solar folks who say, you know, Envy Energy is always going to like find weird numbers that has to do with like determining what the true value of solar is, which no one really knows. That, like, the, there's a lot of tangible benefits that are hard to quantify that they say Envy Energy never takes into account. So uh, we'll be looking into that a little bit more into those numbers, but I think that's one concern and one issue that's being brought up, at, at least from the utility, is that cost. Finally, on this whole energy thing, and you mentioned this earlier, and I've been hearing this whole session, I know you have too, that, and you mentioned this energy choice initiative, which passed once, it's going to pass again because it passed overwhelmingly. How does that affect whatever that they, they do and that, that they should be looking ahead, right, to what that new deregulated environment will look like? And, and I hear people who are skeptical about this bill say, listen, they're not taking this into account. They could do things now that could end up costing ratepayers a lot more in an energy choice environment. Yeah, so it's it's kind of hard to plan for question three because it hasn't passed yet. And like you, it's very difficult to craft legislation that deals with a constitutional amendment that hasn't passed yet. There are other states who have done it. The, the talking point the rooftop solar folks say is that there's about 15 states who have deregulated their energy markets and 14 of them still have net metering. So there, there's options there to make sure people who, who enter into these 20-year agreements and have net metering aren't left high and dry once uh, if question three passes again. You can um, like force them all to go to what's called a provider of last resort. So in, in to get like really in the weeds, in a deregulated energy market, um, there's something called a provider of last resort, which is like who provides your power if the retail company you buy power from goes under. So they could be forced to take it up. You could require all the retail energy companies to take it up. 
Um, so there are options there. It's a question of how much stuff they can get in the bill that would also apply going forward just because it hasn't passed yet. But that's another concern that, that, that's been bandied about. And Envy Energy, we should say, has specifically said on the record, we're not doing that. We're not going to be the provider of last resort, correct? Yeah, they said that they only want to do transmission, so they have no interest Become in being a Become a wires company, company, essentially. Yeah. But it's a question, you know, can lawmakers force them to be right. a generator because they have all these assets? Will, or will they have to sell all of them? Like, there's just so many. Go back and listen to, like, episode four or five or whatever, <laughs> and you can hear about it, me talk about this for another 20 minutes. But I guess what's what's strange about this, Riley, is that this, this may be the most complex uh, issue of the session. Energy is very complex. You and Michelle wrote this great piece trying to explain it to people. And the Assembly has essentially sent these bills over to the Senate to deal with uh, with 10 days left in the session, uh, essentially. They can't possibly vet these issues the way that they've been vetted before, right? No, they can't. And these are both of the measures, the the RPS bill and the net metering one, like they got a lot of, rev of revisions. I think the net metering one went through like eight different iterations before they landed on this one. So a lot of like the, the utility, the rooftop solar folks, the renewable energy folks, all of the big players have had their say on it. Like the Senate hasn't gotten as much of a chance to go through it, but... Um, they've certainly spent a lot of time like trying to figure these things out, but that's the, the downside of a 120 day session is that, you know, you get a week to figure out the stuff that's going to affect energy policy and like ultimately what happens to people's power bills and they have, a, you know, 10 days to figure it out. Speaking of another uh, issue where uh, all the action was in one house, Megan, and then it was pushed down to another house and, and, and essentially was pushed out very quickly as opposed to the energy uh, bill uh, and what, what's going to happen there probably is this issue we've talked about a lot on this, uh, on this podcast, and that's uh, freshman uh, Democratic Senator uh, Ivana Cancela's bill that would bring transparency to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, it's, it's known uh, as, as the first of its kind uh, in the country. There were a lot of developments, including very uh, uh, swift developments uh, today, Thursday, in the Assembly. Talk about what happened. Right. So everything has happened very fast on this bill since it, um, since it left. We, we haven't even talked about the, the Senate vote on this bill because that happened last week. Um, every, everything moved so quickly on, on that bill. And so this week we saw yesterday, which is Wednesday for those of us, for the people who aren't listening to this on, uh, well, obviously it's Thursday. Okay. Anyways, so the committee hearing on that bill was on Wednesday. Um, and it was, it was kind of a rehash of, of the arguments we heard on the Senate side. You know, we heard a lot of pushback from, you know, Republican assembly members, you know, making some of the arguments that pharma and the pharmaceutical companies have made, you know, arguing that this is going to be difficult to comply with, that it's not actually going to help patients, um, sort of these sort of uh, concerns that, you know, the legislation isn't going to do what it says it's going to do. And that was one thing that Republican Assemblyman Robin Titus um, said today again. And for people who, again, don't remember what this bill does, it has a number of different parts, but, but the main thrust of it is this transparency mandate that it puts on manufacturers of diabetes drugs. So people who make insulin, they'd be required to report this data to the state, certain things like the cost of producing the drug and cost of marketing it and the profits they get and the different rebates they hand out to people. So it requires all that. It has another provision that requires healthcare-related nonprofits to disclose contributions they receive from the pharmaceutical industry. It has another provision that requires pharmaceutical sales representatives to report their activities. You know, when they go talk to a doctor and market X or Y product, they have to say, you know, what samples they handed out. Did they give them any gifts and whatnot? So that's sort of the, the bulk of the bill. So during the hearing yesterday, one of the interesting things I think that came out of that was this discussion about whether the bill was legal. 
We've heard talk about this throughout the whole bill process. For those people who have been following this, they remember that there was a price control provision at one point in the bill, which actually would have sought to sort of regulate the increases in diabetes drugs. That was taken out due to a constitutional concern. So we've heard these, you know, this is a discussion point that has come up before, but a couple Republican assembly members raised this concern that there might actually be, you know, this could violate state or federal law or something. And it was interesting because the Legislative Council Bureau had actually written this opinion and it was posted online before the hearing saying that they'd gone through all the provisions of the bill and they've determined it all to be legally defensible. And so it was sort of, you know, preempting those questions that they were asking during the hearing. Um, so it was interesting to hear that whole that whole dialogue. And um, anyways, that brings us to today, Thursday, where um, Assembly Health and Human Services Committee had what's called a behind the bar meeting. For people who don't know what a behind the bar meeting is, it's basically when everyone's on the assembly floor, they just sort of make an announcement and say, hey, Assembly Health and Human Services is meeting behind the bar now. And so everyone just goes and gathers in a little cluster in the assembly chambers and has the meeting right then and there. And that's what they decided to do today for SB 265. So they actually voted on the bill. It was a very, very quick vote. Um, Republican Assemblyman Chris Edwards, you know, he was like, hey, I actually, I have some meetings scheduled later this afternoon. I'm trying to get some more information on it. Is there any way we can roll this? And the chair of the, that committee, Democratic Assemblyman Mike Sprinkle, he just said, no, nope, we're not gonna do that. And that was that. Um, and that vote did split on party lines. So that happened very suddenly, I think, you know, the next actual meeting point would have been at, at the next meeting, but they decided to, you know, move it forward quickly. So we had that happen. And then literally like 30 minutes later, once the assembly floor session actually started, the first bill up for a vote was SB 265. That vote happened very quickly. Um, we saw a couple different, you know, people making some comments on the floor, concerns about the bill. There was one in support and it all went very fast. And again, it split down on, on party lines. And so now the bill goes to the governor. There, there weren't any other amendments to the bill, so it doesn't have to go you know, back to the Senate for concurrence or anything. So he's sort of the next step with this legislation. And he's been noncommittal. We know he's been working, uh, he and Mike Weldon mm -hmm. uh, and Richard Whitley, who's the head yeah. of uh, Health and Human Services, have been working with Ivana Cancel on it, but they haven't committed. I saw Mike Weldon, I happened to run into him in the hallway, and he gave me a very definite we'll see uh, on the bill. But it would seem that the governor's probably uh, going to sign this. I guess what some people listening might wonder, though, uh, Megan, and we did hear some testimony from uh, farmer reps at, at, at that hearing on, on Wednesday is, okay, it's all about disclosure now. There are no price controls in there. What would be the objections uh, uh, that, that anybody would have to having more disclosure, especially when it comes to something like diabetes medicine or any kind of drug pricing? What's the objection? So the main pushback we've heard on that point specifically from the pharmaceutical companies is one, that information, they don't maintain that information in that form. And the pushback to that is that, you know, we don't really know what information the state's going to request from them. That would be determined during the, you know, when they're developing the regulations and figuring out exactly what it is they want them to report. So we don't even know that at this point in the process. And so that was one of the things, um, one of the reps from Pharma, the trade association representing all the pharmaceutical companies in the United States said was, you know, we just don't maintain the information in this way. And the, the pushback again is, well, maybe, maybe you should, maybe this is information the public should have, and maybe there should be a way of, of tracking all of that. Um, so that's one of the concerns. And then the other pushback from the pharmaceutical industry on that is, 
you know, how is this actually going to help patients? You know, is the average patient going to want to access this information? Are they going to take the time to look at it and make these decisions? And the answer is for some very involved patients, yes. Like they are going to want to go and look at that information. There's, you know, a lot of people who are very involved, very concerned about the price of their drugs and probably will actually go and look at that information. And then but the other, you know, more broad part of it is that, you know, the, the press can access it, legislators can access it. It's just more information out in the public space, which could affect a change. And that's one of Democratic Senator Ivana Kinsella's arguments that she's made all along is that, you know, if you have the information out there, just knowing the reality of the situation is shown to bring the cost of drugs down. So it seems to me that uh, wrapping this part of, of the discussion up, that there's two ways that this bill, even if it's signed by the governor, uh, could still uh, be changed significantly or, or erased. One is, of course, despite that uh, Legislative Council Bureau opinion, they can sue. The pharmaceutical companies could sue. The trade group could sue and say this is unconstitutional. They could bring in a federal lawsuit. Ha ha have you heard talk about them doing that? I have not, but um, I know there was a different bill. I, th I think it actually had a price control provision, um, but there was – or it wasn't a bill, but there there was a similar proposal in Washington, D.C., and I remember that Pharma did sue on that behalf. I mean, Pharma has a lot of resources, you know, as an organization, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that they would take legal action. They have taken legal action in the past. Um, you know, even there was a transparency provision that passed in Vermont, and the way that bill ended up, it, it got to the point where, okay, you have to report all this information but so little of the information could actually be provided to the public. Essentially, all they provide to the public is this list price, which is like barely any information at all, you know. And so you may have that information internally, but, you know, how much change does it actually affect? The other issue uh, that it seems to me that could undermine what Ivana Cancel is trying to do with this bill, and this is also an answer to the trivia question, is what will Megan Messerly be doing after the session, which is <laughs> the regulatory process. Mm -hmm. They have to set regulations. Yeah. Most laws like this, they need to go through a, a, a regulatory setting process, and there will be a ton of lobbying in that by the pharma companies to try to get those regulations written in such a way that it will either, I use the word undermine or or or, or, or gut the provisions of that bill that Ivana Cancelo. So I think that's really, and something at the, I think we should at the, at the Nevada Independent follow with a lot of legislation is how these unelected boards that are now going to be setting regulations for a variety of these different bills, not just this one. And so they are certainly going to be involved in that in that regulatory setting process, right? They will, yeah. And, and that's sort of one of the interesting things. You know, you talk to you talk to the senator, Ivana Kinsella, about it, and you know, she's hopeful that the regulatory process, you know, they'll develop very specific numbers that they can request for the companies, make it something very feasible for them, and that it'll sort of all work out in the end and that we, you know, the state will get this information. Um, but like you mentioned, you know, it, it goes both ways too. You know, you can you can make this information so obscure that it, it doesn't really help anything or so narrow that it doesn't really give you a broad picture. And we just don't know what those what that's going to look like because what the legislation lays out is so broad. It's just these big categories of information. And, you know, pinning down exactly what the data points are is going to be a lot harder. Yeah, it's a fascinating issue, though. And as I said, we'll, we'll continue uh, to follow it. So... Michelle, you've been sitting there very patiently for 15 or 20 minutes, either listening raptly to this or playing Angry Birds on your phone. <laughs> I'm not sure which. Uh, but let's talk about a couple of stories that, that, that you worked on uh, this week. Uh, one of them is a fascinating issue, I think, that people listening are, are going to be interested in. And that's this issue of private prisons uh, that they've talked about. What happened with that? So um, 
as Megan and I have written about um, in the past, there's there's a movement towards kind of these criminal justice reform measures this session. Um, and one of them is the private prisons. So there's an effort to ban Nevada's use of private prisons. Um, the problem is that that's coming at, a, at the same time that the state is dealing with overcrowding issues. Um, so you've got these Democrats that are very excited about ending private prisons. And then you've got the Department of Corrections folks who are, um, by all accounts, pretty progressive in their approach to corrections, but they really want to keep private prisons in their toolkit um, because they're telling us, you know, the way they measure capacity, 168% is kind of what they call the emergency threshold. So that's more than every other cell has uh, two people in it. Uh, they're at a level that's 183%, so they're above this. And at 168, you're at this level where uh, it could be dangerous for the correctional workers. Um, so the the woman who's proposing the uh, private prison ban, Danielle Assemblywoman Danielle Monroe, Monroe Moreno, um, is actually a corrections officer herself. And she recognized that, okay, we're going to get to the point if, if we ban these private prisons right away, people are going to be sleeping in what are called boats, which is these basically plastic frames with a mattress on it. Um, they're going to be sleeping in, in a gymnasium on these boats. And that just gets to become an unruly situation. Um, it's going to lead to potentially fights or, um, you know, issues corrections officers can't manage that group it becomes of a security and safety issue inside the prison yeah um there's plans to expand the uh, state's capacity but that's a couple years out they're just just getting into the funding of the planning stages of that it's going to add a couple hundred more beds they've also got this wing um in this prison down south um that's actually basically not fit to be occupied um and so they're they're saying you know public works is saying we're not going to give you a certificate of occupancy. This is just like a really unsafe place. I'm not sure if it's because it's insecure and people could break out or what the issue is. But um, so there's uh, there's a big overcrowding issue. The Department of Corrections people are calling it a crisis. There's efforts um, this session to really try to get people out of the prisons and onto parole or onto some other programs. But those need to be very successful um, to really meet these targets and for the state not to need just a lot of these private prison beds out of state. Um, so what happened this week was they ended up approving a budget. Um, the department had asked for 400 out-of-state private prison beds. And um, the Democrats that were leading those committees said, you know, we don't give everybody what they want. And if you want more of these private prison beds, um, maybe you can propose a tax and maybe we'll approve it. And that was kind of a jab at the right. Republicans who would never do that. Um, so they ended up approving 200 beds. And so now we're projected to have a, a shortage of nearly 200 beds in the second year of the biennium. Um, so either those... Nevada budgets on, and just in case some people listening don't know, Nevada budgets on a two-year cycle. And so this is, this is going to be a problem in the second year uh, of the two-year cycle. Yeah, so either they need to come back and ask for more money, um, or they better hope that the initiatives they have going work, and they better hope that the prison population doesn't surge, um, because all these could create a real issue for the state. 
So you and Riley also covered other budget closings uh, since we did our last uh, podcast. There's, this is what happens toward the end of the session, in case people don't know. They start closing budgets, so to speak, deciding how much money they're going to appropriate, whether it's for private prisons uh, or the prison budget or, or for education or for health and human services. And so they started uh, to do that. And they can't really close down the session until they close all, all the budgets and say, here's how much of your money we're spending public and on what, what 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 happened with some of those budget closings they stuck uh with the governor's recommendations on a lot of these um which is generally what happens we should tell people they usually don't t divert a lot from what the governor proposes yeah they did um add a few things back uh one of the things that they did do was kind of restore some of the mental health um, aspects. One of the things that they did on Saturday, uh, there's a children's psychiatric hospital. They were going to close and basically let uh, lease it out to a private company to run. And they said, we don't want to go that far. We want to have the state at least running some uh, services for, for children down in Vegas. Um, we also saw a lot of the programs that Sandoval um, started in 2015 reauthorized through the budget. Um, and one other thing folks were pretty excited about was um, not only did this UNR engineering building, they approved that project. They're going to put upwards of $40 million of state funds towards this project and build a, a, an engineering building up there. But they're also um, putting some money towards more projects in the south. Um, and it was a little bit of like a, a north-south thing because, I mean, UNR is getting this nice building and, and CSN also wants a health sciences building. So they ended up approving money to get those projects started. So they're going to be doing something that's going to be training healthcare workers. There was a building at Nevada State College that will be for education to try to build the teacher workforce. And potentially they will look again later in the session um, to try to get money to a UNLV engineering building. Yeah, maybe, potentially, later in the session until 10 days left. Riley, I know you're hopelessly biased on this issue because uh, of your time spent at UNR, which, uh, by any, in, in my opinion, uh, we'll probably get nasty uh, letters now on this. UNR is a, is a beautiful campus, I think, compared to UNLV, yeah, frankly. Top five, top five in the state, John. Top five in the state, definitely. <laughs> and, and, and I guess what I, I'm saying is, is that... Is that and Michelle mentioned this, this whole north-south thing. This engineering building, which has been talked about for a while now at UNR, sounds like it's going to be gorgeous. Are, or the, is there a sense that they're just giving out these little trinkets now uh, to the places in the south? Yeah, so I wrote about this um, several <laughs> months ago now. It's been a long session. Very. Um, <laughs> but UNR was able to get the funding for this because they were able to secure, to secure about half of it through private funding. So Mark Johnson, the president of UNR, went out and said, we have... Um, 44 million or whatever of, we, we basically can like put up half the money if the state can put up the other half. So at uh, CSN, at, at Nevada State College, they just don't have like the, the foundation. They don't have the, the donors who are willing to give up those big checks. People like UNR, it's the flagship university. There's a lot of prominent alums who have like really deep pocketbooks. People like engineering. They like to see, you know, Tesla, a lot of um, advanced manufacturing stuff going on at UNR. So there was kind of a sense, I think, from a few of the community college folks in Southern Nevada, and they ended up getting their wish because what Michelle was talking about, these proposals to build at, at CSN and Nevada State College weren't in the governor's budget initially. They were priorities for the Southern Nevada Forum, which is this group of, like, you know, uh, Chamber of Commerce, Southern Nevada legislators to come together and put together priorities. It was one of the big priorities for them, and they were able to find the money to, to, to do it, but... Um, the UNR one is interesting because I think a lot of it had to do with um, how much money that the universities themselves could put up. 
Do you get in trouble as 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 a, a graduate of that school calling it UNR instead of Nevada? I've been wondering why they don't call me for fundraising anymore. Maybe that's why. <laughs> that, 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 that must be it. I'm proud of you, though, because I will never call it Nevada. Uh, let, let's talk real quickly. Are there, are there any other, before we get to talking about what, what the end game is and what, 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 what's left, are any other bills that, 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 that passed this time uh, in, in, in a broad way, in a narrow way? Are they worth talking about? Well, one that jumped out to me that passed today was SB 233, which is Democratic Senator Julia Ratty's bill um, codifying some of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, these, you know, contraceptive benefits and preventative health care benefits, like certain vaccinations, vaccinations and screenings and what have you, um, actually codifying that into state law in the anticipation of an ever-looming ACA repeal. Um, and that actually passed today with a significant amount of uh, bipartisan support. There were, I want to say, six Republicans who signed Including on. Including the minority bill. leader, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and I did. thought that was unusual too. What was going on with that? So it's, I mean, it's interesting. We we saw in on the Senate side, um, uh, Republican Senator Heidi Ganser was the only one to sign on. It was a thirteen to eight vote over there. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to see Republicans sign on to this, um, you know, especially because of all the sort of, you know, rhetoric around the Affordable Care Act and concerns about this. And one of the interesting things, too, is that um, Senator Ratty's bill even goes a little bit further, and it includes this 12-month distribution of contraception um, provision, which would allow someone to go to the pharmacy counter and ask for a 12-month supply at once, and insurance would be required to cover that, and a pharmacy would be required to dispense that. So it actually goes a little bit further. So it was surprising, I think, to see that many Republicans sign on to it. Um, but but maybe, you know, this is sort of an indication that this doesn't have to be, you know, as, as part of an issue, partisan of an issue as it has been. There was an amendment that they adopted today that Republican Assemblywoman Jill Tolls had where they're um, exempting insurance providers from providing drugs that end, that terminate pregnancies. Right. So I think that might have been part of the reason yeah. why in some of the buy-in was to was that amendment. And there is specific language in there that says, like, we are not trying to essentially provide abortions. You know, this is not the purpose of that bill. Anything else? Any any other interesting bills we want to talk about? Uh, well, one bill that got signed today that was a big priority of Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford was this uh, mandatory police body cam bill, SB 196. He had a similar proposal last session in 2015 that only applied to the Nevada uh, Highway Patrol. It really was an issue of funding. So for the last two years, he's been trying to figure out a way to basically, you know, how, how do you buy all these body cameras for police officers and store the, the recordings? Because Republicans and Democrats alike, you know, kind of agree that police should be wearing body cameras. Republicans say, like, you know, police need to... It, it, it just it, it lends more transparency, transparency to the process. So it's a thing called 911 surcharge fees. It's a, a surcharge that you can put on a telephone line that the telecom company has to pay, presumably to help uh, upgrade or improve 911 systems. This would now allow counties to raise that surcharge fee from... Uh, before it was only several of them could do it to 25 cents. Now they can all do it up to a dollar to help pay for them. I think there's another bill out there where uh, some of the like the rural counties where no one has a phone can call or come to the interim finance committee and ask the state for money. So they got buy-in. It passed out of the Senate with one no vote. There was like six or seven in the assembly and the governor signed it and we're the second state to have uh, mandatory police body cameras. So that was one of his his big goals that, that got signed. It won't yeah, be Yeah, and part of his whole criminal justice reform and, and doing these social justice bills is very important to him. Anything else? Do we want to talk about vetoes? Sure, let's talk about vetoes, yes, because we, we, we had seven vetoes uh, handed down. It was kind of one of these normal releases. Here's some bills the governor signed, and then right at the bottom, oh, by the way, he also vetoed seven bills, right? Seven vetoes is a lot. 
um, I think we we determined that last session that was the total number of vetoes. So so now he's up to eight. He also vetoed um, the IP one, which was the automatic voter registration uh, measure. Um, but what we saw there is uh, there were there were two bills that were kind of in the criminal justice reform category. One was the Republican Senator Joe Hardy had this bill where he was going to allow older offenders to get a uh, house arrest after they had completed more than half of their sentence and um, hadn't committed certain types of felonies. It was going to affect about two prisoners. So it's a very uh, small measure, but um, that one got vetoed. Um, even though it was backed by a Republican, the governor said, you know, uh, how do we, why should we give someone preference just because they're old? Um, and, you know, you can go get a pardon if you really want to make a case about your age. Uh, so that was interesting. We also saw a bill that would have reduced some penalties for drug possession. That got vetoed. Um, and then we saw some things from 2015, which were uh, key parts of compromises that happened last year. Um, one these was are things, just before you go on, I'm sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, but these are things that uh, uh, the Republican-controlled uh, uh, legislature passed on on issues that were, uh, and, and you call them compromises, but the Democrats essentially did the best that they could and things they really didn't like, collective bargaining kinds of things. And now uh, uh, the, the governor's main priority, he has essentially said this session, is I'm not going to let you undo what, what, what was done. Amid this huge tax increase, they passed a lot of so-called conservative reforms. And so there were a couple of vetoes of, of things that the Democrats tried to undo, right? One of them was this prevailing wage. So prevailing wage is kind of like a minimum wage for construction workers. It's based on the county and based on the type of trade you're in, very specific type of trade. Um, so last year, uh, they wanted to cut this out. And at the very end, they came up with a compromise that, okay, we'll let, uh, we'll let the prevailing wage apply to school construction projects and uh, Nevada system of higher education projects, but we're only going to pay 90% of, of whatever this prevailing wage is for whatever trade it is. Um, so here comes some Democratic Assembly people, including Assemblyman Chris Brooks, wanting to bring it right back up to 100 and the governor said no there's no there's nothing no superseding change that has happened since then that would would justify me uh, accepting this rollback of what was kind of a compromise at the end of the last session and i guess what we're, we're going to see now uh, in the remaining 10 days uh, the, things like that they had to know the democrats had to know that the governor was not going to allow those kinds of things but there's been a lot of talk that they're going to do certain things for some of their base people, whether it's labor or trial lawyers, and send it over there saying, we are, or to, to be fair to them, things they really believe in that are part of their so-called blueprint, right? Uh, that they're just going to send to the governor and say, we, we, we probably know you're going to veto this, but we need to do this, whether for political reasons or because we really believe in it, right? I think that's because they had to know those kinds of things were going to be vetoed, right? Some things like that were pretty obvious that, you know, it was not going to happen. So and then that leads into the discussion of, of, of essentially what's left. Uh, we're, 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 going, we're going into the, home, the really home stretch now, 10 days left, uh, nine, eight days by the time some people uh, he, hear this. What, what, what have you been able to find out? We're going to have some reporting in, in, on the weekend uh, in, in, on the Nevada Independent uh, a website about this. What's left out there? What, what are the trade-offs? By the time people hear this, they may have voted on the pot tax, which is one big uh, issue that the governor has proposed, which I, f I found humorous today. 
I don't know if you saw this, Riley. Uh, you have a twisted sense of humor, as as do I. That the Republican mi minority leader in the uh, Senate, Michael Roberson, was essentially saying we're going to hold this hostage to getting uh, funding for the school choice accounts. But that's the governor's tax increase. Yeah, uh, it's such like a weird puzzle of two <laughs> issues. So I, I think you know, there's all these things we've been talking about. There's everything from minimum wage to energy. Farmer got signed today, so the governor still has to sign that. But I think the session is going to come down to two measures, basically. It's this marijuana tax, which the budget is based on. They can't close down the budget because they they have, I think it's like $64 million, right? Um, that's in the budget. Like, it's already count accounted for. So they have to pass that bill. It takes a two-thirds vote. And it's this whole question about education savings accounts, this quasi-voucher program that allows parents to apply and get $5,400 to spend for school supplies or tuition or, or whatever. It's something that was found unconstitutional, uh, the funding mechanism, not the program itself. Republicans have said since day one, we're not going to support any budget that doesn't have this in it. So I think those two things are becoming kind of tied together because they need Republican support to, uh, one, pass the pot tax and close down the budget, but they also need Democrats to help get the ESA bill out. So I think those two are kind of working together in tandem through the session. Um, I think as, as soon as one starts to go, the other will start to go. Again, I, we did a ton of reporting before the session started on where everyone was on ESAs, this program. There hasn't been a hearing on it yet. There's been no public process. There's been a lot of behind-the-scenes movements, meetings between legislators and, and different sides, seeing what kind of Democrats they can get to support this and to take one for the team and get the budget out and get some of their stuff out. But I think those are going to be the two biggest ones over the next 10, 9 days. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. I hadn't even thought of that until you said it. Th there hasn't been one ESA hearing at all this entire session now, because Scott Hammond had a bill, but they, the, the Republican senator, they essentially never had a hearing on that one, right? And then the governor put his in. But here it is, what, what we've known from the beginning was going to be the biggest component of the end game, and they haven't even had a hearing to vet, uh, even though, you know, there's been plenty of discussion. There hasn't been one hearing on a bill on theoretically the most important Endgame piece, right? Yeah, it's not only an important endgame piece, but they're making changes. It's not the same thing it was in 2015. They moved it out of the treasurer's office into its own separate thing. Um, there might be different things like means testing or other stuff like that, like really important changes. And, you know, whether or not your feelings on ESAs are, like there's a, thousands of parents out there whose like children's futures kind of depend on what they do with this program. So, you know, the fact they haven't had a public hearing, like I, I understand the politics behind it, but it has to be frustrating for a lot of those people. Yeah, and and, and, and uh, I, I found out today that the, that the state teachers union has now uh, formed a new pack, and they're running a campaign, essentially, radio ads and uh, mail pieces. They call it vouchers, uh, even though they're not technically uh, vouchers, and so they're trying to stop it, even though I don't think you can stop it, because it seems clear that some form of ESAs, uh, do we agree, is probably going to get through? I think... Um Almost everybody thinks there's going to be some sort of a deal on this. Um, the teachers' union is really holding out hope that there won't be a deal. Um, so to talk to them is is kind of interesting. And it's interesting too because I, because the state and the county are different. Uh, because even I got I was approached today by John Velardita, the head of the Clark County Education Association, who was kind of laughing after I, I published this piece about the NSCA, the state teachers' union campaign, and he's laughing. He said, "I thought they already gave up on that." You know, like essentially to imply, like I did, because he had already made these statements toward the beginning of the, of, of, of the session. But there is talk of a deal. There's these meetings going on privately, and there hasn't been a hearing. Yeah, and the, you know, groups like the NSA hope they can just make their Democrats hold strong, um, you know, get the 21 or 22 they need to um, block this. 
but I think it's going to be a hard sell. I don't think um, I, there's a lot of Democrats who are not total, totally, um, you know, in the teachers union camp. I think there's a, a big spectrum among those Democrats. And um, I mean, while it's not an easy thing to get, you know, six or seven Democrats to vote for ESAs, there's a lot that are willing to talk about what they might want to trade for it. And there's kind of this sense of inevitability that there's going to be some sort of a deal and you can't really fight it. Plus, a lot of them, to be honest, after being here this long, they want to go home, right? And so they're going to want to make a deal. Well, what else is being talked about out there, Megan, in terms of deals at the end? Well, one of the things I thought was really interesting, we went and we asked the governor some questions earlier this week, just trying to get a sense of where he's at on some different issues. And one of the things we asked about was uh, criminal justice reform and two of the bills that um, Speaker Frierson and Senator Ford have. Um, Speaker Frierson's board would um, restore voting rights to, to some felons up, upon release. And um, Senator Ford's bill has to do with sealing records. And it was interesting, I think, to hear his response, especially when I asked about Speaker Frierson's bill. Um, because Governor Sandoval, there was a kind of similar measure that he vetoed in 2011. And I I'd kind of posed the question to him that way, saying, you know, you vetoed this bill back in 2011. You know, there's kind of a similar bill this time around. And he sort of pointed out, and he, he was very quick to say, you know, this is not the same bill of 2011, you know, drawing a very clear distinction between the two. Um, and so I think the fact that it isn't the bill from 2011, and Speaker Frierson has told us that he's been working with the governor's office. You know, they, they both said they've been working with each other. They're clearly trying to, you know, have that be something that they can give to the governor, governor and have him sign. Um, and so that actually seems somewhat hopeful. You know, neither of them are going to say on either side, you know, the governor's not going to say, I'm going to for sure sign this. And, you know, the speaker can't say that either. But it seems like it, there's sort of a good indication there that this is something now that the governor's more comfortable with, which yeah, was I mean, interesting, I think, to see. He wouldn't yeah. have, I don't think he would have corrected you unless he's right. trying to get somewhere where, <laughs> exactly. where, where he can sign. <laughs> something. The other issue that, that's been looming and that the Democrats have talked about a lot uh, during this session is the issue of a minimum wage uh, increase. Uh, there's, there's the, the, they've held out this, oh, we, we can just go to the ballot and do it, but of course that takes a lot longer if it's a constitutional amendment. So they want to get something. There's some talk that, 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 that there's going to be a trade-off between some small increase in the minimum wage and some adjustments to overtime uh, rules that the big businesses and small businesses want. The gaming industry seems to be pushing uh, for that. And it seems to me that that could be the kind of thing because Democrats were so opposed uh, to doing anything with overtime. Uh, I remember la last session that that could be the kind of thing that maybe keeps us here longer than we want. What do you guys think? I think minimum wage is a, it's a big issue, but it's one of those, I think, progressive goals that kind of depend on how the ESA marijuana tax question settles out. Um, you know, they had a $15 an hour minimum wage bill that was quickly amended to just raise the health insurance standards for the lower tier. But yeah, I think minimum wage um, of like the progressive, I guess, work goals is probably the, the easiest to get done to get a, a signature from the governor on, as opposed to anything like paid sick leave or some of the other proposals that they have, where businesses are just by and large totally opposed to it. Um, the overtime thing is interesting because that was a bill last session. It raised it to $9 an hour and changed the calculation. And I'd have to go back and check the vote totals because my memory doesn't go back two years, apparently. <laughs> yes. But it was uh, sponsored by two Republicans. Um, I, think, I think I got unanimous Democratic opposition, and it was one of those where it was like the final day of the session. They just couldn't get the votes to, to get it out. But it almost got there, uh, making those overtime and small changes to the wage. Are there any other issues out there that could 
because usually what happens at the end is some issue comes up, and whether it ends up being the minimum wage over time or something else, ESAs, some issue comes up that, that gums up the works and, and, and keeps us here until uh, midnight on, on day 120. Are there any other issues that we haven't talked about that, that, that could end up in the end game discussion? Well, one thing I think Michelle at least has been trying to find out is that the state legislature got a ton of, well, not a ton of money, but they got 90-something million dollars when the economic forum, which determines how much money the state has to to spend in its two-year budget, uh, met on May 1st. So once the budget closed, they have like an idea of how much extra money, quote-unquote, they have to spend on different programs. They have a ton of bills still in their budget committees that all di- appropriate different amounts do a bunch of different things. We've been trying to figure out what their priorities are for that. A lot of that is to this weighted funding formula bill that Michelle can talk a lot about because I just still don't really understand it mm-hmm. despite watching your guys' nine-minute video. Um, <laughs> but that I think that's a, that is the biggest one. Yeah, they need to fight. I mean, there's so many of these proposals that cost money, and you got to decide, you know, are you going to fund the weighted funding formula? Are you going to fund the, the promised scholarship that could create free community college? Or um, there's just so many things. Um, so it's going to matter. They're going to need to set some priorities um, and decide how to spend that pot of money, which is diminishing because there's a lot of other random things that have Because people are going to grab at that money. Budget. It's like the end of the session Christmas tree, they call, they call it. But the governor, I believe, after this economic forum met, said he wants all of this extra money to go to education, correct? He wanted it to go to the weighted funding formula, which is kind of like the next level of, of what he's been doing through this Zoom and Victory programs to help you know, English language learners and low-income kids. So this is kind of like the, the next generation model of that, and he wants to get that started, get that money flowing to different um, classrooms. So, um, you know, what we're hearing now is that maybe uh, maybe they'll need $7 million of this um, extra pot of money. They've already put aside $72 million um, that was from the governor's budget. It was meant to expand the Zoom schools and the Victory schools, and they're going to put it towards the weights, but they're trying to get a little more money for that. Um, and then they've got other things floating around, you know, Clark County school district wants this, um, employee management IT program that, uh, our colleague Jackie has written about. Um, so they want that and they say, we really need this to do the, the CCSD reorg correct. Um, so there's, there's a lot of these different, uh, potential things that could cost a lot of money. And we haven't even, we haven't done our, uh, we should wrap up here, but we haven't done our uh, This Week in Michael Roberson. But let's just mention, uh, Riley, that probably Michael Roberson, who you found out may have some emergency bill coming. They all still have potential emergency bills coming. And, and the way I see these emergency bills that the leaders can propose is, like, let's make a statement that we can use in our campaigns in 2018. Uh, Ford, uh, Majority Leader Ford, did a first responder bill, which had, coincidentally, he's running for attorney general. That looks great for him. Uh, uh, Roberson may have something to do with sex offenders, so he can look tough. Uh, 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 this weekend, Michael Roberson was a fairly quiet week for Michael Roberson, was it not? It has been a fairly quiet week for Michael Roberson. He did give me a Reese's Cup on Tuesday, so that was that was big. Um, that was a highlight for my week. Uh, and, and did you write a nice story? Uh, is that is that what your price is a Reese's? Yeah, Cup? it's a, you know one candy for one <laughs> one uh, nice story. And, and, and see, the, we're a nonprofit, so it's not that expensive. That's yeah, right. he will be uh, doing something tomorrow, though, right, Megan? He has yes. a bill coming up for a hearing he, on 
Friday. He does, Friday, yep. So we will know what happened at that hearing by the time this this podcast comes out. But um, his sort of, you know, alternative slash companion piece to Senator Kinsel's um, pharmaceutical bill um, is focusing on a different part of the drug pricing process on these things called PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. They're important in setting the prices of drugs. They're sort of involved in the middle of the process. Um, he has a bill focusing mostly on them, has some other pieces to it as well, and that'll be up for a hearing tomorrow. That was one of the things that when, you know, Republicans voted for Senator Kinsella's bill on the floor, on the Senate floor on Friday, you know, they said they did so with the understanding that Roberson's bill would get a hearing. And so that awaited hearing is is tomorrow, and we will see how it goes in Senate Health and Human Services. Getting a hearing, of course, means very little. <laughs> but the, he wanted to have the Republicans on the record as voting for something. I think he realized when there might not be a vote on it, that's when that caucus folded uh, in the Senate. All right, we're out of time. Let's do what we always do uh, at the end and give uh, our, our loyal listeners a hint of what's coming uh, over the weekend uh, in, in the Independent. What's coming, Michelle? Well, uh, as we talked about a little bit, we're going to get more into ESAs and what's really been going on behind the scenes. Um, things have been really pretty quiet lately, but there's that doesn't mean there's not been a lot of action. Um, so we're going to get into uh, what's next and and where, where people are falling in The contours of the deal, debate. perhaps. Okay, great. Megan? Riley and I, as always, have another Follow the Money. I think this is going to be probably our last one of the legislative session. Um, it is focusing on a, a very big and important group that we wrote about at the beginning of the session as sort of part of a, a broader digest of all the campaign donations. But this week, we'll focus on the gaming industry, the ever-important gaming industry. And there is obviously a lot of money there, as you might imagine. Yeah, well, and we'll have a chart with that. Yep. Charts, we'll always charts. Riley, anything else? No, I'm going to take the rest of the week off. That's okay, okay with you, well, John. It's a slow time of year. I think that's yeah. fine. You're doing the follow the money, though. Yeah, helping out Megan with the follow the money. And then we're also doing a, a kind of a preview slash constantly updating story of all of the different issues we just spent the last 45 or 50 minutes talking about, whether it's energy, uh, pharmaceutical stuff is still kind of coming through a lot of the criminal justice bills. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that because... You know, the last time you listened to this podcast, we were waiting for the pharma stuff to get through the assembly, and now it's on to the governor's side. So and stuff moves fast. And we should remind everybody the one, a couple of great things that you guys are doing that, that they can look at uh, this weekend is we have our bill tracker. Uh, we've been tracking the bills, and we have this great spreadsheet uh, that, that is constantly updating with all the votes, and it's color-coded. Am I right, Riley? Yes, and now we have a new tab. New tabs. There's new colors tabs. and tabs, and it's it's a whole bunch of well, What is the new tab? Tell uh, so the new ta- so the the two previous tabs were just all the Senate bills and all the Assembly bills. The third tab is now any bill that has passed both houses moves to the third tab. So that's that's bills that are sort of done. You know, maybe maybe someone needs to concur somewhere in there, but other than that, they should be relatively on their way to the governor. And we have all the bills that have been signed, or we still need to get the bills that have been signed, but all the ones who have been bills vetoed, signed, bills which that is that have a lot been easier vetoed, to count. Bills that are in the governor's office, bills that are just hanging out, waiting to go to the governor's office. We got all that. W- will we potentially have a fourth tab by the end of the session? Or are <laughs> we, are we, we almost, is our limit three tabs? We almost created a fourth tab today, <laughs> specifically for vetoed bills, <laughs> but... But, but we decided against that. All right, guys. Thanks uh, thanks to uh, uh, Megan and Michelle and Riley. Thanks, as always, for coming. This has uh, been another uh, edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, even praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. And please check out our site if you haven't already. That's the Nevada Independent. 
Google.com. Also, please rate us on iTunes and subscribe. You can also find us on Google Play and other places that our once fantastic but not so fantastic intern was supposed to have told me about but did not email me. So thanks again uh, to, to the great uh, Carson team. And I was just kidding, of course, our fantastic UNR, uh, UNR. Riley, not Nevada. Intern, do you say do you do you say UNR or Nevada, Joey? I say UNR. He says UNR, so we will we will continue to retain his services. That's Joey Lovato, who is our great uh, 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 producer of this podcast. He makes us all sound at least semi reasonable. Thanks as always for joining us on the Indie Matters uh, podcast. I'm John Ralston. We'll talk to you next week. Welcome to the Indie Modders. Indie Modders. <laughs> <laughs> Ready? Uh, yeah. Five, four, three. <clears throat>